hello, I am Mark Gerson and I am the rabbi's husband. And I am so delighted that everyone is here tuning in to this podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to analyze in partnership with a guest, a passage from the Torah to try to extract the life affirming meaning that is resonant in every line in the Bible. We approach the Bible as the Bible defines itself. Torah means teaching. Torah is designed to teach us how to live happier, better, and more meaningful lives in the most practical ways. And that's what we do here in The Rabbi's Husband with each passage with a guest. And I am so delighted today to be joined by my guest, Pastor Dumasami Washington. Pastor Dumasami Washington is the founder and the leader of the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel. And Pastor Washington has a long career as a pastor, a composer, an author, and a music teacher, and as a leader of churches. Pastor Washington led the Congregation of Zion in Stockton, California for 16 years and worked at Kufi, Christians United for Israel, as the diversity coordinator for seven years. And I am so delighted today to be able to discuss with Pastor Washington one of the great passages in the Bible, which has such resonance in American history. And this is uh, Deuteronomy 34, 1. So uh, before we get into this awesome passage, and it's really remarkable and important lessons for us as Americans and importance to American history, let's just talk a little about you. How did you come to such a love for Israel and for the Jewish people? And thanks, Mark, for having me on. Uh, I've been looking forward to this. It started as a young age for me, right? I was raised, raised as a Christian, born in Little Rock, Arkansas, in the, during the segregated South. It was late 1960s. Uh, I didn't grow up there. My parents moved to California when I was just a baby. So I, we went straight from North Little Rock to San Francisco. My upbringing was San Francisco, both San Francisco and then also the Valley out there in Stockton, but was always a, a young, devout Christian, right? I, I would love to read the scriptures. And we, I was a musician as well. Uh, my, one of my favorite stories, my mom would tell me, my, most of my parents have passed away, but my mom would tell me when I was a baby, I sat in the front of this back old school Black Baptist church back then. It was like the, it was very much like a shul, right? You had the guys on one side, you had the ladies on the other side, oftentimes. And so the women would sit together as the matrix and I would sit in my mom's lap and just dance and bob to the music. I love the music, she said. Mm. And I was fine until the preacher got up to preach. And when the music stopped, I looked him right in the face and I cried as loud as I could. She said, I did it every week to the point where he got a, he got a complex. He's like, he's, he's wondering like what's wrong with, with him. And so I, and it's, I, of course I was a baby. I didn't know, but little did they know it was because I was a musician, right? There was something that was happening there. Wow. So Mark, I just always had a love for that, for the songs and then the scriptures. My parents bought us, I was the youngest of seven children. What were some of the songs? Oh yeah. Well, some of the songs, and it's funny, there's not a, it's a shameless book plug, but my, my book Zionism in the black church, right. I spent a lot of time talking about the songs. So I remember the songs that were everything from, uh, we're marching to Zion, beautiful, beautiful Zion. They were always had Zion or Israel themes all the time. Is that right? Uh, yes, sir. Was this typical of the black church or was this in this particular church? Not only is it typical black church, it still is to this day. I mean, Lauren Hill, for my, my opinion, the greatest hip hop album of all time was the miseducation of Lauren Hill. Anybody who knows that album, Album, you know what I'm talking about? It's Jerusalem and Zion all throughout the whole album. Her first son was named Zion. And the song that I just referenced, Marching to Zion, that goes back over 100 years, she put that song in her song about her son that she won Grammys for, right? So this is still very much a Black church ethos thing. It's been going on for centuries from the slave era 
through the Jim Crow era to right now, it's still very much a what I call a spiritual Zionism, this deep, deep identification with the children of Israel, the first the exodus from from Egypt, the whole thing. This is still very much of a reality right now. So the songs I remember are from my childhood. One other one is from Isaiah 2. It's called, um, I'm going to lay down my burdens down by the riverside, right? It's an old- I love that song, of course. Yeah, it's we've been singing in black churches for, for over a century, right? It goes way, way back. I was going to say Elvis did it, but Elvis took it from the black church. Exactly, exactly where it came from, right? They, he learned it, like as he learned a lot of his music and style from the black church, right? Right. And this was actually, this was these were songs that went from slave era again, all the way through, through Jim Crow, and it was such a theme, Mark, and as a, that connection all the time, because the slave songs and the Negro spirituals and all those things were a, the songs of hope and songs of redemption, right? Um, Harriet Tubman, the great abolitionist, was called Moses, right? So you always had the, right. these parallels that were there. So, yeah, I remember the songs from a baby, right? So that's what it was for me. And the last thing I'll just say is we're opening up is that when my parents bought us Bibles, um, as little kids, because we were there, we, we were what I call church babies. We were at church all the time, five, six days a week for choir huh. rehearsal, for whatever meetings, whatever like that. And so when I would read the Bible when I was little, I read the Old Testament more than the New Testament. It was just, it was just there, right? I, I love the gospels. I'd read about Jesus. And, but I knew about the patriarchs by the time I was 10, I probably knew those stories, at least in our translation, right? Not in the Hebrew, obviously, but I knew those stories backwards and forwards and Joseph and his brothers. And, and then I'll, later on, David and Solomon, these, I, they, they fascinated me. And so that was where part of that love for Israel actually just started as a child. Beautiful. So t- tell us about your, your journey from childhood to the present. And particularly when we uh, had dinner a few weeks ago in New York, you told me about a vision you had at the Kotel. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Mark, 2012, fast forward, my first trip ever to Israel. I was a guest with Christians United for Israel, which is one of the many reasons both has, a, I served on staff later on, but always be very grateful for John Hagee and his vision and Christians United for Israel. I'm there always wanted to go. I'm at the Western Wall and it was overwhelming, uh, right? It's just complete. I write about them. This is your first trip to Israel, 2012? That was my very first trip during Hanukkah of 2012. It was December, can't remember the next, the next date. And the way that Kufi often does its trips for the pastors, we start in the northern part of the country a couple of days earlier. By the time Shabbat comes, we are coming to Jerusalem. So we're there for several days. Um, so our, our tour guide took us there our first day. And literally, Mark, as the bus is coming to Jerusalem. We, we drove from Nazareth, Trump coming to Jerusalem, right? So you can see, you know, the, the, the hill from the, from the distance, right? The closer we're getting, the more I'm having just as this really intense uh, experience, right? This is, no one scripted it for me, anything like this is what's happening. So by the time we get to, I guess we're coming through the Dungate, right? I just get overwhelmed. So the, our tour guide, uh, uh, pastor, Dr. Michael Stevens, he was the African-American outreach coordinator at the time. He led the, the pastors up to the wall, uh, the ladies on the one side, of course, guys on the other side. And I just stood in the back and he said, you could, I, I just could. I, I was so overwhelmed, Mark, that I felt that I really didn't. I wasn't prepared to walk all the way up to the wall. Right. I wanted to like, just stay back and take it back, take it in. It wasn't until the next morning. It just I would just do this, Mark. I, I, I'm an early morning person by nature. Right. So I got up early, like five in the morning, got a cab, took it to the Western Wall. Once I found out that, you know, it was open and people could come in and and there, Mark, I had one of the most tremendous spiritual experiences in my life. And the short version of the story is that at the end of that, I had a strong, strong sense to return to the United States and really work on the, the solidarity between the Black and Jewish community, as well as Africa. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Before we get to that, I want to hear about the vision and the moment. So you're at the hotel. It's 6 a.m. 
About 5 or 6 a.m. Yes, sir. There are no crowds at that point. And, and then you walk right up to the hotel. But the, the day before you stood back, for some reason, you couldn't go all the way to the hotel. Mark, in all honesty, the day before, I felt as, lo- as much as I was waiting for this moment to come to Jerusalem and pray at the Western Wall, I felt so unworthy to do it. I felt like, you know what? This is a moment. But I feel like there's such an intense presence of God here that I just need to just stay back here and try to take it in. I didn't, I didn't feel that it was time for me to just go up to the wall, right? Like a, a Moses Exodus 3 moment. Take off your shoes for you're standing on holy ground. That's exactly what it was for me, Mark. And, and no disparaging for the people who walked up, right? I'm watching them and they're all excited. Right. There was an excitement, but not that type of excitement. There was more of a, wow, I'm here. And, and what was a trip to me, Mark, was this. I could feel God's presence, right? It was just such an intense emotion. What did it feel like? Well, you know what? As a pastor and as a worship leader, someone who's done music all of my life, it felt like, and those of you who are Christians or who've done these worship experiences, like a very intense worship experience. Like we're in church. There's a lot of worship. There's a lot of praise. It's spontaneous praise. People are lifting their hands. People may be weeping, right? Somebody may be at the altar, just bowing down, right? Just this really intense thing where the music and the worship of the people just kind of converge. God's presence is just in there. That's what it felt like to me, right? There's no music in that sense, right? There's no, but there, this right. is what it felt like to me, just multiplied a few times. And that's how I identified it. I said, gee, as a worship leader. So, so th- this is like Jacob. I, I did not know, but God was in the place. Yes, absolutely. As I left and I saw the, the, you know, they have the little writings and the placards that are there, you know, at the area. And it says, as you know, the divine presence never leaves this place. And I said, before I read that thing, that's, I was like going, my God. So I know the temple is no longer here, right? right? I know this is the retaining wall that Herod built. But my God, for in my opinion, the presence of God is so here, right? And it was overwhelming to the point that it was overwhelming for me. It was like, I just couldn't go to the wall and touch it and pray and put a note in there. It was, it felt perfunctory at that point. I said, you know what? Let me not do any of those things, right? Even though I've never been here before. Let me just try to take it in as much as I wow. can. And I wept back there. And Michael Stevens came back to me and said, he's just checking on me. One of the things I loved about the leaders of Kufi, and I, I became one later on, was that he in no way invaded that space. Hey, you know what? Cool, no problem. You stay right here. We're going to go and whatever. We'll come back. And he, there was no interview. Hey, what's wrong with you? None of those types of things. He could just tell that I was having a very intense personal moment. And he just let me do that. And as well as the other pastors on the trip, it was just beautiful for me. Beautiful. So it's 6 a.m. the next day. No one's at the hotel, probably a few people, but it's not crowded at all. You walk right up. What happens? Yes, sir. I walk up, Mark. And again, the same emotion. There's there's a lot of weeping. I have this sense as I'm just praying, right? I'm praying. And I like to walk when I pray. So I'm walking to the hotel. I lay my hands on the wall and I'm praying. People have asked me to pray for you know different things. Hey, pastor, you're going to the wall. So I'm remembering those things. But in this very intense thing for me, I'm doing what I usually do. I'm praying for my wife. I'm praying for my children and all those types of things. And I just, just sense this whole love that I've had for years for Africa and this love for Israel converged there at the wall at that moment. And I really feel this strong sense of God just kind of talking to me, talking about, you're going to do this. I'll give you one example. I'm standing on the floor, right? And at some point as I'm praying, I, there's this little vision that of one foot is Africa and the other foot is in Israel. Like I'm standing on a map, right? 
And so this is how strong it is that's going on. And he's talking to me about the alliance between Israel and Africa, the alliance between the Black and the Jewish community, right? And as I'm praying and just kind of weeping, just trying to take it in, right? And I've heard about these types of things. I remember Dr. Higgy gave a testimony about in the late 70s, he's at the wall and God talks to him about Black-Jewish relations. Before, I mean, I'm sorry, about Christian-Jewish relations before Kufa. That was the birth of Kufa in his heart, if you will. So Kufa was born at the wall. Yes, sir. Absolutely. Dr. Hagee tells this testimony. He's praying. And just, I can just, I'll segue to there real quick. I'll just, I'll, I'll jump to there. He, he, he tells the testimony many times, Mark, where he's praying at the wall. He looks over to the side and he says an elderly Jewish man with Talid and he's rocking and he's got the prayers in his hand and he's praying and he's weeping. And God speaks to him. He said, you see that man over there? You don't know him, but he's definitely afraid of you. And it jolts him. He doesn't know why God would say something like that to him. Short version of that story, he begins to research and it's only that time. Now, Dr. Higgy's already a very famous pastor and minister ministering worldwide, but it was then he's taught us that he got another education about the history of the church against the Jewish people. He was not aware. He educated himself over the next few years, understanding that's why God said that to him. It, It threw him for a loop, but then he had to educate himself as to why, right? So here is my experience some 40 years later. I'm there at the wall, not really thinking. At this point, I don't even know about Dr. Higgy's testimony, right? I'm just kind of there at the wall. And I, as clear as I can say it, God's talking to me about Israel and Africa, the Black and Jewish community. And he's talking about the work and, and the work I'm supposed to play, right? I, I used to tell the congregation often, you know, if you kind of know if God's talking to you, if you have no idea how you're going to do what he said, right? You're, you're, you're hearing it, right? You're like going, but I have no clue, right? You're not, it's not like you're thinking, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to be whatever. I'm sitting there going, okay. And as mm. I'm praying and trying to take it in, no joke, Mark, one of the rabbis, I say rabbi, but he could have just been one of the holy men that was praying there at the wall, right? While I'm praying and I'm walking now at this point, right? I'm walking, I'm pacing a little bit. As you know, like I said, there's few what I call prayer warriors, right? There are people that are there, but it's not a lot, large number, small number. He looks me right in the face, Mark. I never met this man before. He says to me, the right man at the precise moment. Now, the one of the things that I'm praying about that very moment is God's timing, right? Okay, is this time? I, you know, how do I do this? I'm struggling, come on, like a Moses moment, right? God says, you're going to do this. And Moses goes, eh, you got the wrong guy, right? This is not going to happen. I'm having that type of tussle with God in my own heart. And at that point, this Jewish man looks me right in the face as if he knows what the conversation that I'm having, right? And he tells me to the face, you're the right man at the precise moment. So it just floored me again. He doesn't know, right? I mean, at least he doesn't know cognitively, right? And then we have a little brief 10-second conversation, and he says, very good. He just walks away, right? This this is happening all at the hotel that morning. Wow. It sounds to me like that man is in the biblical understanding an angel. That Mark, that's what it felt like to me. When he said what he said, it was at the moment that I'm struggling with God's timing and my own clarity. I'm like going, okay, are you sure? I'm really having that Moses conversation with him. And he's like a third person in the conversation saying basically, yep. Dude, you're the one, but he, he, he said it to you. This is what's going on. And I had several other experiences similar to that in my next few days at the wall. Because each morning I would go to the hotel just to pray, right? And I love to do early morning things. Every year after that, Mark, once I was on staff with Kufi, every year when we would be in Jerusalem, I would always go early to the wall and I would always make the announcement to the other pastors. It's been amazing, Mark. I would always, of the 30 pastors we would leave, there were always 10 or 12 who would always say volunteer. And I would do it like this, Mark. I would say, hey, you all, this isn't part of the regular 
tour that we do, but this is something that I personally do, but I extend it to you as well. Meet me in the lobby of the hotel at 5 a.m. We'll, if it's close enough, we'll walk. If not, we'll take a cab. There's always several pastors that would meet me downstairs and they would tell me each time, Mark, Pastor Demistani, the whole Israel trip was amazing. I will never forget that early morning prayer at the Western Wall. All of them, their prayer lives and their ministry lives shipped, shifted and changed forever. They told me that from being there early in the morning praying at the Western Wall. We could go on with this story and this testimony, this mission uh, for a very long time, but we got to get to Deuteronomy 34, which is such a terrific passage. And you have a take as to how it's important, not only in the biblical understanding, but in American history. So what happens in Deuteronomy 34? Deuteronomy 34, Mark, as you know, is the closing of the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses tells the children of Israel about how God has taken him to the mountain. There's a description of him seeing the mountain. He can't go into the promised land. Of course, we know earlier on during the wilderness journey, Moses hits the rock. He's supposed to speak to the rock. And, you know, God tells him, hey, you can't, you can't enter in. And so at the end of his life, God takes him to Mount Nebo, I believe it is. And he allows him to see the promised land. And so one of the many times, as we were just talking earlier about the whole, you were asking, was the whole song and music thing in the Black church, was it just that church? It was throughout Black churches throughout. And we see that with obviously the, probably the most well-known Black pastor of the 20th century, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And he references this scripture. He doesn't give it chapter and verse, right? But his very last public meeting, hours before he's assassinated, literally on April the 3rd, that night, 1968, because he's killed on April the 4th, 1968. He literally tells the congregation there in the church there, and he's in Alabama at the time, I may not get there with you, but I want you to know we as the people will get to the promised land. He tells the people very presciently that though he would like to live a long life, that's not his main focus now. He just wants to do God's will, he said. And he said, and I've been to the mountain and I've seen the promised land, a direct reference to Deuteronomy 34. As a matter of fact, not only did it resonate, he's describing himself as a Moses who has gone as far as he can go, right? But will go no further. But he's talking to the people there, particularly the younger people. He's using the promised land as a metaphor. It's interesting to note, and this isn't a political statement, but just interesting to know that uh, Barack Obama, during his first campaign, he referred to himself as the Joshua generation. Again, a direct reference, he says, and he's referring to Dr. King's as the Moses generation. At that point, he calls that the civil rights era, the Moses generation, then his era, the Joshua generation. Again, here we go 50 years later after Dr. King's assassination, still this reference in scripture, right? There's still this parallel between the Hebrews in the Bible and the Black American experience here. And that's that scripture. And it's ironic because, of course, you know, this, this is the last Torah portion, but this it was also the last speech that Dr. King gave. All those parallels are there. Again, several hours later, he's taken by an assassin's bullet after referring to Deuteronomy 34. Right. Now, Dr. King was living the Moses dream in his time quite consciously. And in 1954, he gave what became a famous speech at the Dexter Avenue Baptist Church. He gave it again two years later at the Cathedral Church of St. John the Divines right up the street from here. And this speech was called The Death of Evil by the Sands of the Seashore. Underneath the title, it said, 
Exodus 14.30, and he identified himself in that speech, as he often did, as a Hebraic Christian. He was very, very aware of the roots of his faith, Mark. And as you know, good friends with Rabbi Heschel read his book about the prophets, so absolutely, sir. And so from 54 until his demise, he was not only inspired by Moses, although he was certainly inspired by Moses, but he was living as Moses would live if Moses were a 20th century American. I believe, like you said, it was very much a conscious thing for him. He had a sense of destiny. He had a sense of the moment. There was the old pastor, I can't remember now, said that had America faithfully followed through with what it needs to do in terms of dismantling the, the racist system. You, Jim Crow takes over, of course, after the Civil War, right? Right. If it had done that successfully, Back during the days of Booker T. Washington and Julius Rosenwald, again, another Black Jewish connection, there would not have been a need for a Dr. King and Joshua Heschel. In other words, there was still so much unfinished business. I tell young people all the time, Mark, that the success of the civil rights movement wasn't just the integrity of the people, right? But it was, it was the righteousness of the cause. What was it doing? Dismantling a system that was superimposed on the Constitution. There were constitutional rights afforded to Black people like everyone else that were being withheld because of the Black codes because of Jim Crow. And so what you had to do, there was another fight after the Civil War to now dismantle another form of slavery, right? Another form of segregation, separation, and destruction, even in terms of the, the lynch, where there were no lynch laws that in, in place when Black people and others would be lynched because of their views, because of who they were or the color of their skin. You have now the Civil Rights Movement and Dr. King as a Moses leading this exodus, right? Actually having to go through, you can almost look at the uh, the negatives of the Jim Crow and the Black Codes as the plagues, right? These are things that are actually happening. And he's giving a moral voice saying, hey, it's almost that, that speech, that last speech we talked about the night before he's killed. He said, all we're saying to America is be true to what you said on paper. In other words, if we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, but we have a two-tiered system for people of color, Clearly, we are not living up to our creed. Now, I also tell young people this, that he wasn't trying to destroy the nation. He was saying the nation is not living up to what it's supposed to be doing, right? This is what we are supposed to be about. And on that last speech and that he gave, again, he, refer, he refers to Moses again right before his death, just like Moses before he died, talked about, I've seen the promised land, Dr. King, the same way. Right. Fascinating. The civil rights movement was really written in the language of the Exodus. And it's very interesting, if you look at Michael Walzer's 1986 book, Exodus in Revolution, he discusses how he went down to the South as a young man to be a civil rights leader, effectively. And he would go into black churches every Sunday and each sermon was about the Exodus and its relevance to the contemporary struggle. And so Martin Luther King was both leading and responding to the fact that the civil rights movement was in the language of the Exodus and that the civil rights leaders mainly, but by no means exclusively, Martin Luther King were living the Exodus dream. What's amazing, Mark, is that that connection, that correlation between what was happening in America and what was happening to the black community uh, during the civil rights movement, you can go all the way back to the beginnings of slavery and those songs go down Moses, way down in Egypt land, right? Uh, Joshua fits the battle of Jericho, swing low, sweet chariot, referring to Elijah. 
all of those songs, those Negro spirituals sung on slave plantations were almost always, some of them were in the New Testament. I'm going to walk in Jerusalem, just like John referring to the New Testament, referring to the book of Revelation. But many of those were rooted in what our Jewish brothers and sisters called the Tanakh, right? They, and why? Why were these songs and these sermons often the theme were because of the same thing. There was this connection where the belief from my ancestors that God would deliver us from slavery the way he delivered the children of Israel in Egypt. This was always the connection, which is why the songs were sung and the sermons were preached that way. So here you are, you fast forward in centuries now into the civil rights movement. And as it's happening, this is going on. I tell uh, when I referenced Dr. King's speech in 1963 in Washington, D.C., and he's quoting from the Constitution. He's quoting from the Bible. One of the times he says, let justice roll down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream from the prophet Amos. Right. And we were saying that when he's doing that, though it may have been newer to some people who are watching it, because now television is a thing. Right. And the thing is being broadcast on radio. What was not new is for the black folks standing there, they heard that all the time in church, right? They're listening to the Hebrew prophets applied to contemporary society. Why? Because it's real for them. Lynching is real. You know, discrimination is real. Though These things are real. So we're needing God not just 4,000 years ago to do what he did at the Red Sea. We're believing for that same God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to do it right now. That's why it was such a right now, a most immediate thing within the black community. So one of Martin Luther King's many great gifts to the United States was the Exodus-laden black church tradition. So when he spoke to Americans, obviously outside of church, he was communicating as though he were inside of church and was in so doing teaching the rest of us how to think about politics, how to think about society using the language and the ideas of the Exodus. And Deuteronomy, of course, is, is just a summing up. So this is Moses's interpretation, really more than summing up of what happened in the Exodus. So it's entirely consistent. Mark, I couldn't have said it any better. That's exactly what it is. And as his life comes to a close here, it's also coming to the end of that part of the civil rights era, right? Which it started in the 50s and the 60s. There was this agreement. You had the high points of the civil rights bill of 64, the Voting Rights Act of 65. I think I have those, those years uh, reversed. So that, that was the apex of it, right? And even within the Black community, you had disagreement about what to do next. Every Jewish person doesn't think the same. Every Hispanic person doesn't speak the same. The same way in terms of the Black community, there were real intense fights about what the Black struggle or the civil rights movement should be, what the next step should be. There was a lot of that was going on, but there was a general consensus that by the time you come to those landmark civil rights bills in the 60s, that much had been accomplished. Now, where do we go from here? Which is a, a book that he actually wrote. You know, where do we go from here, from chaos to community? So the end of his life is kind of the end of that particular era of the civil rights movement. Absolutely. Just uh, two more points. One, you make such a profound point about how within groups, there's lots of disagreement. And following the assassination of Dr. King, the black power movement became ascendant and its intellectual leader, whose name became, and I'm going to have trouble pronouncing this, but Jaramogi Abebe Agaiman, who was previously known as Bishop Albert Klieg, he disagreed with Dr. King on many things, but they agreed on one thing, and I'm going to read right now from his 1972 book, Black Christian Nationalism, where the former Bishop Klieg proclaimed Jesus the Black Messiah, but had the following to say about a more ancient Jew. Moses took more than two million disorganized black people out of Africa, kept them together for more than 40 years in the wilderness, and finally brought them to the promised land. The king of Moab looked down in fear at the nation Israel and said, a people has come out of Egypt. No greater feat of sheer organization has been achieved anywhere 
in the annals of human history. So there were lots of disagreements. This was one agreement. Yeah, absolutely. Isn't that amazing, right? Uh, amazing, yes. It was the language of the civil rights movement. So no matter where you came out in that movement, right. you spoke in the language of the exodus. Moses was the hero and the inspiration and the model right. and the person you wanted to be. And Martin Luther King embodied Moses better than anyone has ever embodied anyone in all of human history. Is that amazing? It's amazing. Which, like you said from the beginning, speaks to the power of Torah. It speaks to the power of the words, the power of these ideals, of course, that our nation was founded on, right? You have 10 commandments, I guess a statue of Moses that's there on the, the Supreme Court area. Yep. You have the scripture about Isaiah and they show swords shall be beaten, beaten in the plowshares of the United Nations, right? You uh, All throughout the Western world, you have the, the whole issue of justice being defined through the lens of the Hebrew scriptures, right? Through the lens of God's relationship with Israel and Israel as the priest to the nation. Even for people who consider themselves irreligious, I'll even dare say there are folks throughout history who even we would call them even anti-Semites, who would still refer to the scriptures and the principles in scriptures that are actually there. Within the Black nationalist movement, unfortunately, one of those things was often a certain amount of anti-Zionism. You have that whole political thing creeping in. Even some of those leaders still pointed to Israel or still pointed to the scriptures, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob when it came to the issues of justice, issues of righteousness how things were going to be accessible to everyone. And that's what's always, it, it transcends. That's what, to me, the power of the, of the scriptures is just amazing how it always goes back to how do we define what justice is? How do we define how everybody has access? It's amazing how the scriptures often becomes the thing. Right. And, you know, the, the more we talk about this, the more you have to just ask, how can we not teach the Exodus to every child in American schools? How do you understand American history without it? <laughs> Right, right, exactly. It's funny because I, I teach a class that has the of ministers that are Black American and African, and we were talking about if you're going to understand the Black American experience, there's some staples, some things you need to understand about history. It's the same thing about our nation. If you're going to be an American citizen, there's things that you need to understand in terms of the founding principles. And of course, that goes to the scriptures. The founding fathers quoted the scriptures. They pointed to the scriptures. This is how we have our rights, right? The, our rights are un inalienable because they don't come from each other. They come from God. God is the one who says that we're free. And again, whether a person is religious or not, you have to understand that those rights, as you know, transcend people or governments. Otherwise, we're all in trouble. Once I think my rights come from that person or that political party or whatever, that means they can take them away, right? And now we're in trouble, right? Once Until we understand that, no, the rights don't come from those things. God is the one who makes men free. And so this is part of what was being established and continually referenced during the civil rights movement. So uh, one more question about Deuteronomy 34 before we get onto our uh, concluding question of the podcast. You've had visions. You just described one at the Kotel. Did Martin Luther King have a vision on April 3rd? Let me back up. This was not the first time he referred to that scripture. As a matter of fact, he would do what we call riffing. In the black church, a riff would be like what a rapper does, right? It's something where you're going on this stream of consciousness, but it may have been something like your old hits, right? And I believe it's been said, someone whispered to him, hey, do that, I have a dream. Because he's talked about dream, right, before, right? So he's done it before, he will just apply it. It's almost like having a sermon that you preach in other places, but now you've kind of tweaked it and now you're giving it at that moment where you are. Something similar probably happened there on that night as well because he had talked about being to the mountaintop. Once again, because he's referring to Moses and seeing the promised land. That's a scripture about hope and promise. I believe in answer to your question, Mark, especially knowing what we know now, knowing that hours later after he said what he said, he was gone. As a matter of fact, nine days before that, he's at the rabbinical assembly. So like much of his life towards the end is intertwined with Israel, is intertwined with the Israel and the black community, 
It's just now that we look back, it's, I don't want to use the word eerie, but it's almost like it was prophetic, right? All these things are going on. Some of the last things that Dr. King is talking about is about Israel and standing with Israel. And of course, the very last night, he says, I've been to the mountaintop and I've seen the promised land. When he says, I may not get there with you, I don't know if he ever used those words before. He hears a man saying to them, we are going to ultimately triumph and achieve equity in this country. Equity, he said, but I may not see it. I may not be there with you, which actually, Mark, becomes a metaphor for the entire civil rights era of those men and women who died doing what they were doing, knowing that they were never going to see it in their day, knowing that they were doing it for me, knowing they're doing it for my children, right? Knowing full well that they were laying it all on the line. Like we said before, like the Jewish friends who also were killed, Cheney and Schwarmer in Mississippi, in Goodwin, right? They're in Mississippi. Here, here they are giving their lives, right? So that Black people could register to vote. Once again, that evil, evil Jim Crow system. I believe it was, and answer your question, Mark, I believe that he had a vision. I believe that he saw. Now, what exactly did he see? I couldn't even venture that, but he saw something that encouraged, he even said to them, well, yeah, he, at the end of that, well, again, quoting, he said, we as a people will get to the promised land. He said, and so tonight, I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. He knows he was getting death threats, right? So he says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Now he's talking about the coming of Messiah, right? He's saying it from the Christian perspective. But again, our Jewish brothers and sisters are waiting for Messiah. Christians, I love the way Rabbi Shlomo Wiskin says it. And when he comes, we'll ask him, is this your first time? Or is this your second time? Almost right. And Martin Luther King, as we said before, he was he identified himself as a Hebraic yes, Christian. Sir. Absolutely. So those the last words out of his mouth, Mark, are I, here's my vision. I see us attaining the promised land. And he says, I'm not worried, I'm not afraid, because I'm looking beyond that to the coming of Messiah. It's, it's about as prophetic a scripture and sermon that you could give, particularly hours before you're dead, but obviously before you're taken away. Well, uh, Dumasani, what a fascinating conversation about so many things around Deuteronomy 34. Now, the concluding question on the Rabbi's Husband podcast always comes from a very different text, which is Andrea Malrue's 1968 book, Anti-Memoir. And he tells a story. He said, I just ran into a man with whom I served in the war. He said, this man had saved a lot of Jews and then had become a priest. So I said to the priest, in all of your years of hearing confessions, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? And the priest said, one, everyone is much less happy than he seems. And two, there is no such thing as a grown-up person. So in all of your years, walking and leading and uh, being such a master of Black Jewish relations, both as a visionary as to where it can be and and just through the process as, as you're realizing your vision, what are two things that you've learned about mankind? I guess it would be the two sides of that coin. It would be that for me, mankind has a great propensity to do amazing good. And then that Jeremiah scripture is also true. Unfortunately, there's another reality that mankind has the potential to do horrific bad, right? That, that it's the, the choice that humans have to make. I put before you a blessing and a curse. Yes, that's, that's what it is to me, Mark. That's what it seems like to me. We, as humans, I and all of us of any age have seen it, right? You've seen people do amazing things, go out of their way, right? For other people, right? Regardless of their ethnic heritage, whatever, their politics, whatever, people have sacrificed. I've seen in my lifetime, sacrifice for other people. And at the same time, I've seen people go out of their way to just do really mean bad things to other people, right? And I, what I found is that those things, as you said, Mark, what God told the Israelites, right? here's the choice, here's the blessing, the curse, here's the good, and here's the evil. Choose, choose the life, right? Choose life. I found that 
I've seen, and it seems to be that's the history of man, that what we choose to do, right? how we choose to use our power, our authority, our voice, our giftings, what do we do with them? I found that it's a day-by-day choice, right? What am I going to do with what I have? How do I express it? That, that's so interesting because all throughout Deuteronomy, one word keeps coming up, and that's the word today. I have put before you today. Well, of course, today. What else did you put before me? I mean, you know, why would it say today so much? And one of the great teachings is the consistent reference of the word today is to teach us that every day is a sacred gift and an incredible opportunity. Powerful, Mark. I, I completely agree. And seeing this through this lens, and I often remind the congregation that as we're reading Deuteronomy, we're at the end of the 40-year wilderness journey, right? Unlike the other books, right? This is the end of it now. And he's it's wrapping up Moses' life and their experience in the, in the wilderness. These things are converging. Moses' death then then opens up the next era. So we're having to read it through that lens. And so there seems to be this immediacy for Moses particularly, because he knows this is it, right? We've, I've done this for 40 years and now I'm going to, I'm going to give this over to you. And he's telling them today, right? It's funny when you say that, I think about Joshua very similarly at the end of his book, choose you this day, right? That seems to be the human condition, right? We have to choose. And today, right? Some choices can't be put off till next week. It's defining who I am as a man or as, as a woman who's, they're doing it now. This decision, isn't it amazing that the choices that we make help continue to find who we are? We kind of walk out that choice, right? What am I going to do today? How am I going to uh, use what I have today? And what way am I going to use it, right? That's for me, that those two things that I've learned as I've done this for a while, that we have the capacity to do either one of those things. So uh, before we conclude, just just tell us about the Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, what people can do if they want to get involved in helping you in your sacred mission. Well, thanks, Mark. Um, again, after that vision, everyone that I had in 2012 went back and started IBSI in 2013. And then to still know, I, it, it was not dormant, but just mostly social media for several years while I was on staff with Kufi, which I did after a year with MC. But if they want to be in, involved with this and we're doing very exciting things, go to ibsi-now.org. That's I-B, Institute for Black Solidarity with Israel, ibsi-now.org. And I'll just say that of the many things we're doing, one of them is called a peace initiative in which much of what we talked about here today, we are taking young, about 25 to 40 years old, Black American and African men and women. They're going through a 16-week study course, and then they'll travel to Israel as a pilgrimage, and then they will come back to their cities, and they will form TESFA centers or HOPE centers that will facilitate Black Jewish solidarity in their area. We have a vision that over the next several years to have some 300 MC ambassadors in some 48 cities across the country. If you want to learn more or be a part of that, uh, you can go to ibsi-now.org. Again, we are a nonprofit as well. For those of you saying, how can I help in that way? You can do that as well. All gifts are tax deductible. But if you want to just get some more information, go to our website. We'd be love, great to connect with you. Well, Dumasami, thank you for such a fascinating conversation and for your friendship and for the great and sacred work that you do on behalf of the Black people, the Jewish people, the state of Israel, and this great friendship and partnership that we have. Thank you, Mark. Th- thank you for having me, Mark. Thank you.
Wow. Well, as always, such a fascinating, instructive, and inspiring conversation with Pastor Dumasami Washington. I am just so gratified for his friendship and for his being a guest on The Rabbi's Husband. This is the first time that we've done Deuteronomy 34, and what a spectacular way to do it. What incredible insights from Dumasami about the Moses of American history, Martin Luther King. And I would like everyone who listened to this podcast and previous podcasts and God willing future podcasts to go to the rabbishusband.com and to sponsor a surgery. These are surgeries of mothers and children in Africa whose lives you can transform or save by sponsoring a surgery that is all curated, all selected, all monitored, and all administered by African Mission Healthcare, which are Christian surgeons working in Christian hospitals, serving people of all kinds all throughout Africa. So go to therabbishusband.com where you'll see a link to sponsor surgeries for those who need it most. And Erica and I are going to match every donation made up to a million dollars. So just write in the subject line, the rabbi's husband and uh, God willing, let's save some lives together. I'm Mark Erson, and this has been The Rabbi's Husband, and thank you for listening. Please go to Apple, to Spotify, to wherever you receive podcasts, rate, review, and subscribe. I can be found at therabbishusband.com or at The Rabbi's Husband on Facebook or Instagram, and I would love to hear from you, so please email me at mark at therabbishusband.com.